welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Rani Lil Andrum. Rani is a philosopher from Norway, interested in the philosophy of causation. Rani is also the head honcho of the Cause Health Project, whose mission is to improve how causal evidence is understood, produced, and used in health science and practice for the benefit of individual patients through transdisciplinary research, education, and communication. If you're not aware of the Cause Health Project, please visit their website and download their free, I repeat, free ebook, and it will have a transformative effect on you and your clinical practice, I promise you. In this episode, I ask Rani, do we need philosophy in health science? We explore common schools of philosophical thought and how they might relate to health science. We also chat about complexity and emergence and how this differs from reductionism, which has been the dominant philosophy in medicine and health science for at least the past century. This conversation was originally recorded in August 2021 for my YouTube show on the shoulders of giants. Without any further delay, I bring to you Rani Lil Anjum. Okay, we are live here today with philosopher Rani Lil Anjum. Hello and welcome to the show, Rani. Thank you. It's so nice to be invited, Jared. Yeah, great. So so you're over in Norway, right? And it's it's early in the morning there on a Monday, so I apologize. It's Monday, uh, Monday, eight o'clock. Yeah, in the morning. So <laughs> what, a, what a great way to start the week talking about some philosophy, huh? So, hey, so Rani, do you mind just giving me and our audience a, a little bit of an introduction to you, who you are, what do you do? I mentioned that you're a philosopher. Now that's cool because you're the first philosopher uh, on our show. So, so yeah, Rani, who are you and, and what do you do? Oh, I work at. Uh something that's called Norwegian University of Life Sciences, which is uh, located just a bit south of Oslo. And um, we don't have a philosophy department, but everyone in Norway, they have to uh, take um, uh, a course in philosophy uh, in their bachelor. So that's Mm. why any university in Norway, they need to have um, at least one philosopher, maybe two or more, just to teach every single student some philosophy. And uh, when I took philosophy uh, back in the old days, it was a full semester, but now it's like a a 10 credit course with a third of a semester. So I Mm. teach that. And also in Norway, if you do a PhD, you have to take a philosophy of science class with research ethics. So that's also one thing that uh, uh, one would normally have to teach. So, yeah, so um, I think because of that, I have been uh, doing a lot of philosophy for non-philosophers, also in my research. Mm. So um, uh, me and my colleague, Elena Rocca, we started a center that we called Center for Applied Philosophy of Science uh, at our university, where we try to engage uh, students, staff, people who work here and people who are here in questions of common interest. So that's why we say applied philosophy of science, because we want to do the kind of philosophy of science that 
people notice so that people can notice that it actually mm. makes a difference to your own way of practicing and understanding your own discipline whether or not you think in this or that way so mm. it's i think the last few years i've been doing mainly philosophy of medicine but that's because of my research so i'm part of um well i started this uh cause health uh, project got the t-shirt there you go health. represent yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh where we work on um, the concept of causation so mm. uh what does it mean that something is cause and effect and uh, so it's uh, causation and complexity and evidence in the health sciences. So we want to we want to look at what counts as evidence in medicine and health mm. sciences. Mm. Um, how do we generate that type of evidence? Why is there this kind of tensions in the disciplines over what is good evidence? And we want to say that there is no um, there is no one given answer in that because in philosophy of science. What we have seen is that these things, they change all the time. Mm. And the evidence-based framework, I mean, it was introduced in the 90s. It hasn't always been there. It's not like a yeah. God-given thing. And that's yeah. the same with all types of scientific evidence. So that's the kind of thing that we want to convey to people. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Great, great intro. So I'll, I'll give a shout out to your book, actually, which um, the Rethinking Causality book that you released through Cause Health. Do you have it? Do you have it on you? There you go. Good. Such I have a... it because I've been home <laughs> officing. <laughs> so I, I honestly, anybody who listens to this conversation or watches this conversation today, download it, read it. It will change your clinical practice. So I highly commend you and your whole team for releasing it. It's been very influential. So all that hard work that you've done is actually making an impact. And it's not just some ethereal philosophy that doesn't really impact the world, as you were talking about, it really does make a difference. So thank you for that. And then also this book here, Getting Causes from Powers, uh, which came out in 2011, was it? Yeah. Was a, um, is a really good book. Yeah, go get your hands on that. So Rani, philosophy and medicine or healthcare, intuitively, it might not seem like a, a real tight fit in a lot of people's opinion, because here I'm, I'm from Australia. And I did zero philosophy in all of my education. So I maybe did a little bit at high school. I certainly did zero in my university training. And I did like a sports science degree. And then I did a business degree. And then I did a physiotherapy degree. And I was not introduced to a single philosopher. I've, obviously, I knew names like Aristotle and Socrates and all of these ancient Greek fellows. But did zero philosophy, which seems to be different from a Scandinavian experience. Anyway, so I graduated. And the only reason why I ended up getting into philosophy almost 10 years later was when I started my PhD. And I, I got exposed to terms like ontology and epistemology and, and realism and subjectivism. And I was like, what the hell? I was completely dumbfounded and, and lost. So a subject on that would have been fantastic. Anyway, so this is an experience that I think is very similar in Australia and the UK and even in the US as well, where we we're quite we have a quite naive grasp on philosophy. So I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna prompt you to to try and give a defense of why philosophy perhaps should be included in healthcare. Why why is it important that we know about philosophy of science in Karl Popper or Thomas Kuhn or or Hume? Or, or something like this. What, why does dualism matter? Why does reductionism matter? Why do all of these concepts matter in healthcare? Yeah, so I don't think it's weird that you that you were not exposed to philosophy. And I think if you if you start 
reading philosophy on your own, you might not necessarily find the things that are relevant. Mm -hmm. And a lot of philosophy written today is philosophers talking to philosophers. And even as a philosopher, it's hard for me to understand what they're talking about because they just start in the middle of a debate and they might all be Aristotelians, <laughs> but they have a very specific debate that they're arguing over some mm. details. And so unless you're given some kind of broader context into the debate, it's actually really hard. So that's why it's good to look at the classics instead. Like mm. some of the people you mentioned, they have not written within, I mean, they have written for a broader audience, it seems, because you mm. can start from scratch and you can get something out of it. So I would want to say that um, in, in health sciences, in medical practice, in medicine, there's a lot of philosophy. Mm. There's a lot of philosophy uh, that is there, taken for granted. Yeah. And that's the thing about philosophy. You should never take it for granted. So when you talk about ontology, so that's the theory of what's the reality like. And many people have heard about dualism, so the mind-body divide that Descartes uh, introduced. And that is a philosophical assumption, and it's a philosophical assumption that has been challenged. So when all of healthcare is divided into mental care and mm. physical care, mm. it's already just accepting it as a fact. Yeah. And what uh, you, you mentioned also Thomas Kuhn and, and paradigms, and what he's saying is that these types of scientific paradigms is like frameworks that are philosophical also in nature, but they are frameworks where scientists, they just work within them accepting this is the theory that is true. So for mm. instance, uh, Newton's laws or uh, evolutionary biology uh, or biomedicine, we just assume these theories are true. And then we try to solve problems within those. Uh, so if this theory is true, what things are still the knowledge gaps. Yeah. So for instance, in, uh, in physiotherapy, mm -hmm. pain is still a knowledge gap, but you try to solve it within the framework. Yeah. So that's why he's saying that uh, doing this type of science, which he calls normal science, is just a puzzle solving thing. Mm -hmm. You just accept everything that your authorities and your science education has taught you, mm -hmm. and you're playing along. But then he says, sometimes there are problems that don't seem to be possible to solve within that framework, within that paradigm. And then you get the crisis and then people start questioning philosophical uh, assumptions because then they say, well, it seems like dualism. It seems like we're assuming dualism here and we shouldn't. And then people say, what do you mean dualism? Are you talking, of course, there's a separation between mind and body. What's the alternative? And then, well, there is always an alternative. It's just that some people have to identify the philosophical, what we have started calling a philosophical bias, because then you can see what are the options. For instance, now there is a big change in philosophy from an ontology that has always been looking at things and their properties hmm. to looking at processes and saying that, well, what are these things anyway? It seems like that the world consists of things. It's just the result of lots of processes. And what we need to look at instead is the interactions and these open systems that these processes work 
uh, within. And then the emphasis and the things are just bad ways to describe reality. So, mm. so this is something that people haven't thought of questioning uh, very much. And you can say the same in medicine. If you look at like things and organs and individuals, but you don't look at the processes and what kind of things influence, yeah. you know, you might miss out on the fact that we are all open systems that interact with infinite number of external and internal factors, you see? Totally. So yeah, those are philosophical, those yeah. are philosophical debates. A hundred percent. A quote is coming to mind and I don't know who said it. So forgive me, you, you might know, but it goes along the lines of there's no such thing as philosophy, free science, just sort of science that's done ignorant of philosophy. And that's kind of the same thing as medicine, right? Like, and I guess we can say in, in healthcare and medicine and physiotherapy, we're kind of in this biomedical paradigm. And it's inarguable that that's still the dominant paradigm. People argue on Twitter that the pendulum is swinging too far the other way. And that's absurd. I'm doing a, a systematic review at the moment about mechanisms in in uh in shoulder pain for example and it's still overwhelmingly uh the majority of 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 research is is dedicated towards biomedical or physical or or observational things that we can see and we attribute somebody's pain experience to those physical findings anyway so so the paradigm that we're that we're operating in at the moment is this is this biomedical paradigm. And even if we're not familiar with it, our normal science or our normal day-to-day -day operations are, are within this paradigm. That's a, that's a very Cunian thing. So I love how you sort of set that up that, you know, philosophy is underpinning or overarching sort of everything that we do. We might just not be aware of it. So, so if we do become aware of it, or if we are initiated into philosophy a little bit more, do you think that would change or sort of open our, our eyes a little bit more as to how we are practicing um, and perhaps make our practice a little bit better. And you, and you, I guess this is kind of what the work that you're doing here with Paul Zelf, you're kind of, you're looking at the system as it is and you're offering an alternative. Is that, is that kind of the objective of where you're at with Paul's Health? Yeah, I think that's a really good description because, I mean, people can agree or not agree with the kind of framework that we offer. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just that's just one philosophical framework and there's no um, evidence ever that it's going to be the correct one. So it's more about getting people to understand, okay, first of all, where do the assumptions of evidence-based medicine and biomedical uh, approaches come from mm. uh, philosophically? Because they, they are philosophical. It's not something you can prove by science. You can focus on it and you will find something, but you're not going to like make evidence that there's nothing else worth focusing on. So what we're trying to do is to say that, well, if you are aware of the underlying assumptions of your own discipline and your own practice, and you also are aware of what the alternatives are, then you can, you can make a reflective choice. Then you can say, okay, actually, I am a reductionist. I mm. do believe that the only thing that exists is actually material. I do believe that if something is mental, it's something that is produced by the physical. And actually, I believe that one day we will find out everything we need to know on the level of physics. I understand what are the limitations. I see the challenges. I see blah, blah, blah. But this is actually what I 
believe in. And then you have made the stance. If you just say that other people are idiots because they don't believe <laughs> the same, you have missed out. And I see I see a lot of arrogance from science. I see a lot of arrogance in academia in general, but I see a lot of arrogance from people who just accept what they learned and they are just making fun of everyone who believes something else, irrespective of whether they know anything about the weaknesses of the theories that they were taught, because even the people who came up with the theories, they were aware mm. of the weaknesses of the theory. But the people who just learn about them from second, third, forehand <laughs> sure. uh, knowledge transfer, they don't learn about the weaknesses. They mm. just learn about it. And this is what Paul Feuerabend says. He says, science has become a religion. We teach it, we teach it like the Bible, but mm. it's not the Bible. It's actually a lot of things going on in science that is quite dynamic, mm. where you need to be challenged and you need to, uh, and you come up with new things and you make new discoveries exactly be because you were challenged and yeah. someone pointed out the weakness of your position and it, it forces you to look again. And, yeah. and if we don't keep that kind of humility, we are not really scientific. We're just like very dogmatic. And that's not a good way. Uh, mm. forward so yeah i might be quite passionate about my own philosophical perspective i write about it everywhere and people might say i try to indoctrinate but <laughs> uh, i would always say that people should make up their own minds about what they actually believe uh, is the right philosophical framework but doing it by looking at positives and negatives mm. the same thing with the you see the the debates on vaccines you can tell people they're idiots because they are worried about side effects of vaccines just because if you look at the numbers, it's a very small risk. But for some individuals, the risk might be really high. Mm. And maybe it's not irrational to worry about it. But if you worry about it just from a numbers point of view, it looks really silly. Mm. So I just think we have to be aware of what are we talking about? Which level are we talking about? Yeah, I, I kind of love your account of, of science there. It's not this omniscient, all-knowing sort of power, right, that exists in the world and is, is revealing all its answers to us. It's, it's a process. It's a method. It's being wrong and learning from your mistakes. And, and I, I like to think of science as kind of like perhaps getting nearer to a truth by like doing things or engaging in research or engaging in experiments that like perhaps rule out some really wrong things that might leave some things that might be a little bit more right for a period of time until they're proved wrong, right? Um, and that's kind of like, you know, you look at Einstein progressing from Newton who progressed from Galileo or something like that. It's, it's a, you kind of, you're perhaps getting nearer, but Einstein in another century will perhaps probably be proved wrong or in two centuries or three centuries or at some time in the future. So, I kind of like to think about it like that. It's it's dynamic. It's it's not static. It's always changing, and it's it doesn't always have the answers, right? Like to be scientific is to be uncertain, and I think I think that's a really important point. Which kind of I want to get into now, uh, Rani, your theory of of dispositionalism. I, I can't explain dispositionalism uh, simply, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it to you. I'm, I'm sure you can do it far more succinctly and articulately than I can. So. Dispositionalism is a theory of causation. Am I, am I right in saying that? 
Well, the way that we do it, so in that book you were mentioning getting causes from powers that we wrote in 2011, Stephen Mumford and I, we tried to say, okay, there is an ontology of dispositions. So mm. there is a way to think about reality in terms of dispositional properties that come from Aristotle. Because Aristotle, he said that everything in the world has potentials and these potentials, they might actualize themselves and this is how things happen in the world so he was looking at the living world he was looking at for instance you have a knot and it can turn into a tree isn't that weird <laughs> what is it <laughs> so so how is it possible for a knot to become something else uh, and he was talking about four causes of things or four conditions for things to change he said there has to be something there in the knot uh, that gives it a potential for instance and in that potential, there's also like a goal that it reaches towards. So there's this natural goal in reality. Mm. He also had a lot of uh, weird things to say about physics. He would say that this pen, it's, it falls down because it seeks home, because uh, it wants <laughs> to go home to where it belongs, namely to mm. the earth. Yep. Uh, so, but but he, he was interested in change. And that was different from many philosophers who cared about what is here and now, and they wanted things, they wanted truth to be something that was eternally true, something that was the most true and eternal, non-changing things. And he said, actually, if we want to find the most universal principle of reality, it is that everything changes. That's the thing that doesn't change, is that everything changes. And why does this happen? So he was talking about this positional property. So for instance, we know that wood can burn. We know that uh, it can give heat, but it doesn't necessarily do it now. So it's mm. kind of a potential that, that is hidden there now. So how does it actually actualize this potential? It needs to come in contact with something else. It needs to have some external uh, interactors. It has, has to some, it has to have some internal properties. Um, so there has to be many things working together. So, I mean, the reason why we are interested in this in, in medicine is because when you ask whether a treatment works, you might just ask whether or not in um, randomized controlled trials, it is shown that when people get this medication, this treatment, they recover. And that's an observation. It's a bit like saying, okay, so does wood heat or burn? And then you see, okay, when we put it under certain conditions, does it burn and does it give heat? Mm. But we might want to say that, well, if a treatment works, it's because it has some intrinsic properties that makes it work. But it only works if it comes in interaction with something else, the person who gets it. And if that person doesn't have the right properties or dispositional properties, it won't be what we call a manifestation partner for the effect. So, for instance, if you take a paracetamol, but you don't have the disposition or the uh, or the receptor, then you're not going to benefit from it. Mm. So I think that happens in all types of treatment. Some people benefit, some people don't. If you only look at whether enough people benefit, then you might not learn about the dispositions of the things, like what other things it can do. Mm. So, for instance, paracetamol doesn't only have an effect, it also has side effects. And you might not be a manifestation partner for the effect, but you might be a manifestation partner for the side effects. Mm. So what 
what Aristotle would say is that the world consists of all these types of potentials. And humans, for instance, we have a lot of different potentials. We also have political potentials, for instance, and moral potentials. So on the dispositionalist ontology, you might even say that what something is, is almost given by its dispositions, what it can do. Mm. So you see, it's kind of, that's why it's called causal powers. Like humans, for instance, we think that humans have free will. So that is something we think sets aside humans from other things. If we think that also dogs have free will, we might have to reconsider, for instance, the way we treat dogs or uh, the way we treat other animals if we think they have free will. Mm. But if we think there's something about our rationality that makes us unique, then we could say, well, actually, this is a good way to classify humans is mm. to say we have rationality and we have free will. And this is something Aristotle would do, for instance. Mm. So what we have tried to do is to say, if we assume the world is like this, that there's a lot of potentials that give things causal powers, then how would we think about cause and effect relationships in science, for instance? Mm. If we think that there are all these potentials that we cannot observe here and now, and that might be different given which things they interact with, how would we go about studying it? And what we're doing in the Cause Health Project is, um, is to challenge the way that we scientifically think of cause uh, and effect relationships by saying that what we're doing now is, is a very different type of philosophy that comes from David Hume, we would say, David Hume's understanding of causation, because he didn't like these potentials because he was what we called uh, an empiricist, and he only believed what he can observe here and now. So, for instance, if you say that the glass is fragile, he would say, how do you know it's fragile? It's only because you have seen similar things break in the past, because you cannot know that you have a dispositional property until it manifests itself. Mm. So it's a bit like saying, you don't know if this nut is going to, if it has the potential to turn into a tree before you see the tree. <laughs> sure. So you need proof, you need evidence. Yeah. And if you just go around saying, oh, this has a dispositional property, a potential to become something else, then you're just speculating. And that's the same thing about uh, if you think a treatment works, you need to see the evidence. You need to see it happening many, many, many times because the evidence is just seeing it happening um, repeatedly mm. under some certain conditions. So, so one thing that we said about causation from a dispositionalist perspective is that, okay, it is something that is potentially there, which is already a problem if you're an empiricist because you're not going to believe it. And But it's also something that only manifests in contact with other things. So you don't know until it starts interacting with other things. And mm. it also means that you should be a bit precautious about mm. what you think you know about something. Mm. Because you might have seen a treatment work in relatively healthy people mm. with only one problem. But then someone comes and they get a really bad outcome from it. Or mm. it doesn't work on them. And you think, well, well, that's just one person. It doesn't matter. 
But from a dispositionalist perspective, you should be interested because you should think, what is it about this person that is so different from everyone else that makes them interact in a different way? What kind of properties do they have that makes this thing behave in a different way? That's really interesting. And that's where we can potentially learn something new. Mm. So we're saying that actually causation could be unique because it happens here and now in this unique interaction. And Hume would say, how can you say that it's causation? Because if you want to say it's causation, you need to see repeated incidents of the same type of conditions. And if you never have the same conditions, then you cannot even begin to talk about it. Um, And then we also say that this this means that causation is extremely sensitive to context. Mm. And, And even Hume, he said the same cause should give the same effect under the same conditions. And then people who work with, you know, work in the clinic, they say, but everyone is different. So we never have the same conditions. So what should we do? Mm. So the only thing you can do, you can make an average patient, you can make a normal patient, or you could just focus on, uh, you know, you can you can have a randomization and then you can see, you can say, well, the same cause gives the same effect, even in these different mm. uh, situations, which is even better evidence of causation, you might think. But, but from a dispositionalist perspective, actually that, that causation is sensitive to context just means that every causal process can be contracted by other things. So it could be something that contracts whether or not you get an effect. So for instance, mm. you strike a match it should light, but not if it's raining or it's very windy. Mm. And and that's from a dispositionalist perspective. I think that could be a really good indication that you have causation. Yeah, I I I I love so much of what you said. And every the whole time you were talking, I was thinking of examples, clinical examples in my head. And there's so many. So so in in physiotherapy, the, the high, almost the highest form of evidence unequivocally that we have to help people in pain is with exercise. And that's it's, it's pretty uncontroversial, albeit it, there's modest effect sizes with exercise. So it's not, it's not curing everybody, far from it, in fact. And the, the dispositionalism ontology there can probably account or explain that, right? So not, not everybody based on their context or based on their individual belief system or how they've been raised or the culture that they're in is going to respond the exact same way to doing a squat because they have back pain, right? Versus somebody else who's actually grown up in the gym, is confident in the gym, wants to look strong, wants to be robust uh, in inverted commas. They're going to respond very differently to somebody else who's not been exposed to that form of culture or exercise culture before. So that, that contextuality is a really key point. And the same thing goes for the causation of pain as well. Shoulder pain, for example, may emerge in one person um, and, and their, their, why it emerged in that person could be completely different from another person. But what we've been trained in this biomedical paradigm, what we were taught and are still getting taught is that we need to look for structural compromise in the tendons. And then that is going to be responsible for pain arising in that individual or there's some sort of movement fault or they've got poor posture and that universally leads to the onset of pain. And we're seeing that it's, it's far more complex than that. So I, I sort of love how you set that up um, in that contextual manner. That makes, that makes a lot more sense. I've, 
I've sort of as a bit of a tangent, been reading a lot of Carlo Rovelli recently. Uh, have you have you come across much of his work? So he's no. a um he's a physicist that is is he's almost interested in the exact same thing that you are with dispositionalism, but he applies it to quantum mechanics. So sort of he's got a relational interpretation of quantum mechanics. Anyway, it's it's exactly what you're describing um, for dispositionalism. So go check him out. And he's got some beautiful yeah. little books that are like poetry he's a he's a fabulous writer as well anyway rani um we could probably talk for hours i just want to quickly go on to another question but i'm just conscious of keeping you too long on the concept of emergence so emergence is a hugely popular topic uh right now in in healthcare and i know it's been popular in or not popular but talked about in philosophy for for a hell of a lot longer so what's your sense of of what emergence is and how can we describe emergence is there a consensus definition or is it a controversial topic where are we at with emergence and then once you sort of set it up i'm going to try and apply it to pain as as best i can well so emergence i have been working a bit on emergence and it's not an easy concept at all to navigate uh, in i mean in philosophy it seems like um there are so many working definitions uh, of what it means. But I would like to have a concept of emergence that would give you some kind of um, part-whole distinction anyway. So you could say that looking, for instance, from a dispositions perspective, you could say the whole can have dispositions that none of its parts have. So Mm -hmm. for instance, free will. So a person can have free will, but if you try to locate it in one of its parts, you can try to say, is it the brain that has free will? Is it like uh, your heart? Is it your <laughs> is it your lungs? You're not going to find it. I mean, some people might want to say it's in the brain and they might be actually reductionists or saying at least that you wouldn't you wouldn't have free will if you didn't have a brain, for instance. So but you could also say, for instance, that a society is an emergent uh, thing. It's an emergent whole that consists of things that are not society. So Mm. for instance, uh, I think Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher said that there's no such thing as society, just the individuals. Mm. And the whole point about the society is that it's something else, and you might even say something more than just the individuals in the society. So. I think when it comes to this kind of consciousness, Mm. uh, one would say that consciousness is an emergent phenomena. And we try to understand these emergent phenomena. They are a problem. Because if we believe in the Big Bang, we know that from that assumption that there wasn't life before. There was only lifeless chemicals. But then life emerged from lifeless how was that even possible that's why we think for sure reductionism is true Mm. because we think of course something that is life can be produced from something that is non-life and consciousness is something that emerges from something that doesn't have consciousness so we know that for instance uh, a flower is a living thing but we don't believe it has consciousness language is another emergent matter um, that we believe you need consciousness to to have. So it's it's these dispositions or these potentials that emerge at what we might call a higher level. 
because it's a higher level because it's a whole related to its parts. So, I mean, I know that I consist of cells and they have life. There's life in the cells, but I also know that the cells, they have particles and atoms that don't have life. And it's a very typical idea in, in, um, in uh, chemistry, for instance, is to think that, well, biochemistry could be reduced to chemistry. And then some people have challenged that and said, no, I don't think biochemistry could ever be reduced to chemistry. Mm. And, and that would be maybe an argument for real emergence. Mm. So real ontological emergence, something that mm. is not just surprising, but it's actually a new thing in the world. Mm. Um, so the way that we talk about emergence, uh, Stephen Mumford and I, we talk about it in a quite radical sense that not many people agree with, because we say that the whole is an emergent whole if it means that it's parts. So it only exists because its parts are interacting and actually changing each other. So the parts that were there before, they emerge into something else in their causal interaction mm. so that if that interaction would stop, it's not like they would go back to just becoming the normal uh, parts that they were. So for instance, when you and I interact, we change each other. Mm. Uh, and that's what makes a society a society because we are not the same when we interact together as mm. we are in isolation. I mean, try to place someone in prison, they're not going to be themselves yeah. uh, <laughs> as they were an, a normal being yeah. in society. So, so the interactions on our uh, theory are crucial. So we actually call it the causal transformative model, um, where we say that the emergent whole, it happens because of a real change going on. Mm. Uh, but then we also talk about something called demergence. So we thought we should coin that term, because then we could write a paper called emergence <laughs> and demergence. And it sounds like you just have emergence twice. Um, <laughs> But demergence would mean that the higher level thing can then change its parts. So for instance, you now have consciousness mm. and you can get education. You can read about how it's healthy to exercise and you can start exercising and that actually changes something on the lower level in you. So mm. you can change something on cellular level. Mm. So you could make your own body more healthy because the higher level influences the lower mm. level. And 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 that is something that many people who believe in emergence, they wouldn't believe that because they're not really holists, they're more reductionists. They would think biochemistry is dependent on, on the lower level. But we're actually saying, no, you could have this top-down causation. There could be real change happening uh, from the higher level to the lower level. So it means you also change when you get education. Mm. you change when you read something and you want to uh, to change something in you so mm. it, and i think that's that's quite powerful because it means that our interactions are not just it's not just to be nice it's actually mm. something that's causally powerful yeah that's that's a bit mind-blowing actually so there's like sort of there's there's bottom up and top down emergence and demergence happening all the time in a state of flux and we're constantly changing and you're not the same as who you were five minutes ago and you're not the same as, as who you're going to be in five minutes time. It's, it's, uh, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit uh, psychologically yeah, but you see, hard to You see, about. because some people have been looking at genes to, to explain behavior. Mm. So they have been looking for genes for 
criminality, yeah. you know, even yeah. genes for homelessness, just to yeah. avoid saying these are social matters. But mm. wouldn't it be great if we mm. were just genetically yeah. determined to be totally. uh, criminals? But we also know that crime is something that depends on which society you're in. Mm. I mean, mm. if I'm driving a car in Saudi Arabia, I might be arrested, but not here in or but just being a woman in the wrong society. And and um, and then they looked before that they looked at brain structure and they mm. tried to figure out why people were aggressive for instance mm. and they looked at brain structure and they saw oh no reason there's no wonder this person mm. is aggressive look at these brain structures mm. but then you might say like this guy steve rose he wrote a book called biochemistry and he said if we think of cause and effect it might actually be that the more times you're angry the more you're neurons will go in a certain path so it changes your brain yep. so the brain structure is actually an effect of behavior and your mm. behavior might be an effect of your interactions i mean mm. imagine being married to a psychopath you're going to be angry a lot yeah. and if that can change your brain and today we actually believe it can change your your biology yeah. uh, to be in a traumatic relationship then i mean yeah you would find physical evidence that look like it's the causal explanation but we need to be we need to at least ask whether this is the cause or whether it's the effect so that's why i think this emergence and emergence path is quite important yeah it sounds like a bit of a, a tangled web um which is the messy reality of reality isn't it it's not it's not we don't have this beautiful Newtonian understanding of cause and effect and we can map it all out and it's all beautiful. Um, yeah, that's, that's not really how reality works. Although it's kind of how we're set up to think though, aren't we as human beings? We do like to see things simply and coherently. Um, it makes sense to us. We've got a worldview and how dare you violate my worldview, like this vaccination debate that's going on right now, you know, D depending on the information that you're exposed to and what, you ex your, what your experience has been with healthcare or, or vaccinations in the past, you're going to have a different opinion on it. And that's, that's totally fine. But if we just bring it back to pain for a moment, and then we're going to, we're going to finish up, is pain, the, the best theory that we have of pain at the moment is that it's an emergent experience. When a human, an organism interacts with their environment and, and a really popular theory is that pain may emerge when danger predominates more than safety. And then that, that pain may emerge in that particular situation. That's, that's a theory, but it's probably one of the most, most popular theories, which is, which is far different from what we're still being taught at many, many universities all around the world, is that pain is simply a bottom-up sensation where pain occurs in the periphery, the signals transmitted to the brain, and this is dualism, and then brain goes, hey, that's painful, let's move my foot away from that. And it's just, it's been comprehensively disproven. We know that pain is a, a weird experience. It's not, it's not a linear experience, you know, a five centimeter cut doesn't hurt five times more is a one centimeter cut. You know, we know that with, with paper cuts, there's not this input doesn't equal output. So it's far more complex and, and nuanced than that. So is that, is that, is that kind of makes sense to you from a philosophical perspective? Is that, is that vaguely correct from, from your perspective? 
So I think um, I think really, if you look at the empirical evidence, looking at all the clinicians meeting patients, and these patients have been experienced chronic pain, and you can't locate it in in the part that is painful, that would be something that is as close as possible to challenging a philosophical assumption, isn't it? Mm. Or at least the scientific. So it it looks like the experience of pain that we see and that you see in the clinic is really a counterexample to the to this reductionist uh, understanding and and i think it is true that pain is i mean it's still being taught in this biomedical way but but what you're describing i was a bit in, interested in that because uh, what you describe as the new theory is also bio medical because you say you put it into an uh, an evolutionary biology setting saying that we are we have evolved to try to move away from pain and to to experience threats in certain ways and and that actually shows that it's not necessarily the biomedical model that is problematic and this is something that two of our co-sales collaborators Lynn Getz and Anna-Louise Kirkengen have been saying for a very long time now, they have been saying that it's not the biomedical model that is the problem, it's our concept of biology that is far too narrow. Mm. We just focus on molecular biology. Mm. We don't focus on biology as something that is wildly contextual Mm. because you can think of ecology instead Mm. and you can think of the way we have evolved and the way that uh, how we experience stress and you have the fight or flight instinct for instance and and if you over a long time experience stress or what they call allostatic load uh you know that can actually harm you on a very deep Mm. cellular Mm. (laughs) level Mm. which can again cause a lot of chronic uh conditions including Mm. cancer and heart disease so so stress it's such a it's so weird that stress has been thought of as a bit of a mystery i think it's because stress is an interactive social thing it's not like it doesn't come from the inside so Mm. why can you get pain in your back from having bad colleagues Mm. (laughs) it just seems because if you don't believe in top-down causation this is a mystery it's just like the placebo effect the placebo effect is just a mystery because Mm. how can thinking that you're going to get better actually physically make you better it's such a mystery and yet we accept it so much mm. that every single treatment has to be controlled for placebo because mm. we know the placebo effect is more effective than most treatments. Mm. Mm. And it's just, so, so I think this, it's the biological understanding that we need to really improve. Mm. And, and in Cause Health, we say we want an ecological turn in medicine. We want to see ecology with its complex adaptive systems theory, its wildly context sensitivity, open systems, you know, you know, you can change a tiny thing in the context and everything changes in the prediction. And we also know it's unpredictable and there's a lot of uncertainties, but that's how it is with, with people as well and their health. It's not like you can say, okay, let's assume you're in a lab where you only have three factors influencing you. This mm. is definitely what's going to happen. That's not the reality of the clinic. Mm. And it's not the reality that we live in. Mm. But it's the way that science 
it's it's very easy scientifically to think within models mm. but the models are only models mm. so we need to have the humility to think okay the real knowledge is in the discrepancy between our models and reality that's where we need to understand things not just saying oh the model should work and if it didn't work then you're a hopeless case or you're just few enough to not having to be very important. I mean, it's not even true because when a treatment works, it might just work for 30%. So it means 70% mm-hmm. of the people you're not helping, but you mm-hmm. still have to give that treatment to everyone because it's what works for most. But working for most just means better than other treatments. Mm-hmm. But if it's 70%, then maybe the treatment that works for 15% is what you should use to this mm-hmm. person. Yeah. So it's just, so that's what I don't like about this evidence-based framework it pretends mm. that when something works it works for 99.90 percent of the population but that's not mm. even true not mm. even when you have applied your inclusion exclusion criteria yeah yeah totally it's what, what we're getting at um in in shoulder pain uh, just quickly is which is my area of interest is no no matter what we do surgery injections physiotherapy doing nothing for example natural history any of those things and all of those things do work in about two thirds of people. And then in <laughs> one third of people, nothing seems to work for, right? And when we're flummoxed and we're like, well, uh, I don't want to deal with those one third of people. It, it must be in their head, right? Let's refer them to the psychologist. That's the dualist approach. But the, but the funny thing is all of those interventions, which I mentioned at the beginning, surgery, injections, physiotherapy, natural history, manual therapy, massage, anything, they all kind of work exactly the same. And this is the, and this is the crazy thing to me. And this is not the crazy thing. This is the interesting thing to me. And this is where the dispositionalism um, uh, concept becomes really, really, really cool to me. Is that all of those things probably have a similar, or might might have a similar underlying feature, or how all of those things work might subtly be different in in each person, but they all might have some form of mechanism which helps them on their on their way to recovery, or are we just like keeping them occupied while while nature fixes them, or are we playing with their confidence? Are we playing with their motivation? you know blah 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 or is it a placebo as you mentioned a moment ago so this is this is why i just i don't think we're going to answer a question ever. I think you would vindicate um my opinion here that there's like going to be a universal superior treatment for all people with back pain or for all people with shoulder pain. And, and this is why I loved your book so much because it kind of gave me uh, a theoretical rationale or an ontology in which I can base all of these um, suspicions and limitations that I've found in my clinical practice by, by pursuing you know, this, this universal or this treatment algorithm that's going to help 99% of the people that walk through my door. And I just have to do this treatment. And if that treatment didn't work, that person didn't do their exercises or, or they didn't listen to me properly, it's their fault. You know, so this is why I kind of, I love where you're coming from. So uh, I guess you can respond to that, but I'm just trying to say thank you for, for all the work uh, that you're doing. Um, and if you have any closing comments. Well, that, it's, it's really nice to hear uh, uh, that philosophical work can actually uh, give people something. Uh, it, it's, uh, we never dreamed that uh, the Core Self Project would be uh, welcomed so much in, uh, in the profession. So that's amazing. One thing that 
I have been very keen to promote in the Cause Health project is that we should understand the real causes of things before we try to fix them. Mm. So if we only fix symptoms, uh, we're not really helping enough. And this is something that um, many people in in this book is also arguing. Uh, and Anna-Louise Kirkengen, Kai Brynjar Hagen, they're talking about people who experienced a lot of trauma and uh, terrible things, for instance, growing up. Mm. And but no one has ever been interested in those aspects because they only focus on what is here now. For instance, you're overweight, so you should exercise or um, you have pain here or you have cancer, so we should fix that or mm. you have headache and, uh, and uh, let's try to remove it. But, but mm. it really does matter from a dispositionalist point of view. What's the real cause of the pain? Mm. So if you have neck pain, and it's caused by the way that you move and your worries and everything because of traumas you have experienced, then y- you can give people a lot of painkillers, but at some point <laughs> you need to also address those traumas. And, and it's, it's really a tragedy that some people that, you know, many people that Anna-Louise Kirkengen talks about, they have been in the healthcare system and gotten gotten all the evidence-based treatment that could be uh, given for decades. But the only thing they experience is to get more and more chronic conditions because they get uh, side effects from the treatments that are not Mm. really helping them. Mm. And no one has ever asked them, what happened to you when you first got into the healthcare system? Uh, so it's just not the focus. I think even in, because what she's writing about in our book um, is that uh, this is a person who's been in the uh, psychiatry ward and no one even cared about talking about those things there either because cognitive behavioral therapy, it's a lot about focusing on how you respond to your problems mm. and, and in situation and how, mm. you, how we might change the way you think about mm. Uh, and the way you react so that mm. you can cope better. But mm. at some point you need to tell people that what you experience is just not okay and it's not mm. your fault and 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 we need to process that because mm. people who are obese, yeah, you might want them to eat less. But if they used to have anorexia, yeah. then just eating less is not going to help their pain and it's not going to make them improve. So I, I was also... I was also invited to talk to people who work in uh, these um, uh, rehabilitation teams. And they said, the people who come to us are the people who are not getting helped in the standard ways. Mm. And they usually need more time and they need to have an interdisciplinary team uh, of people. But but today with this, the, the way that care should be standardized and time efficient, cost efficient, it means that we're not getting to the real causes. We're not mm. helping people in the process that they need to improve because you see them, you diagnose them, and you start with the interventions that you are told to use. But there might be a whole bunch of things you need to do before they are even ready to start rehabilitate. You know, before they yeah. can start exercise, they have to realize that my life has totally changed after an accident, for instance. I'm not ready to start doing squats. <laughs> You're so right. Like honestly, in my first two or three years um, as a as a physio, if someone would tell me that they had, you know, they weren't 
coping with their pain or they perhaps going down the pathway of depression or they were feeling anxious about it or perhaps there was some sort of moment, some sort of childhood trauma or something. I was so uncomfortable in facing these truths. So I'll just go, oh, okay, that's interesting. Write it down, you know, and then move on to the things that I felt comfortable with, right? Which was giving the exercise and doing the test. Oh, that does that hurt? Yes, that means you have this. And so where you're right, it's a, it's a system level issue where us healthcare professionals, and I, I, will, I will say this about most doctors as well, because I have many friends that are, are, are surgeons and GPs, et cetera, et cetera. They're just not really trained to really deal with those things, you know, and because they are in a system that's 15 minute appointments or 30 minute appointments, you know, and then at the end, I've got to do, so, I've got to provide an action because we are, you know, we are predisposed to action i think as, as healthcare practitioners we've got to do something we're going to diagnose we have to treat we have to send them away with a plan and we're so quick to get to that that little plan that we've got that we were taught that we kind of lose the story we lose the narrative we lose hearing this individual who's actually just trying to tell them your story and in our head we're just like this is just noise we're just trying to to get to the end of the consultation so that, that really resonates with me and I'm sure that will resonate um, with a lot of listeners as well. Okay, uh, just finally, Rani, I've got one more question. What book are you reading right now or what TV show are you watching? And it can be a really cheesy TV show. That's totally fine. Well, I watch a lot of television and I don't read that many books. So I've been watching uh, New Amsterdam on Netflix, yeah. which is a hospital uh, series. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Fantastic. It's uh, very okay, cheesy, but, uh, Rani. <laughs> yeah, but what is good about it is like some, I mean, it focuses on some structural problems in healthcare. That's and true. it gives some very easy solutions that yeah. if anything was possible, why on earth don't we do this? So I, I can relate because uh, in a hospital, for instance, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, there can, there can be a lot of damages. And you have uh, compensation budgets mm. uh, to pay people off when they have mm. been damaged. But those budgets are not the same budgets that you get to buy equipment that might prevent yeah, the damages. Totally. You know, so so it, it, it structural change, structural problems mm. are everywhere. Mm. The way that the way that money is allocated. So mm. I, I really like that about the show. I watch uh, also the Good Fight in uh, HBO which is uh, have you heard of The Good Wife yes the yes series yeah yep. this is a spin-off okay uh, so it's uh, I really like that The so Good Fight I, I watch The Good Fight okay yeah when it comes to books uh, Eliana Rocca and I we uh, just signed a contract with Palgrave to write a yeah. positive science book so now I'm uh, reading up on uh, competition to see what other philosophy or science <laughs> books are out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one that I'm really looking forward to check. So for instance, um, of course, I need to look at the very short introduction of Samir Okasha because yeah. um, our book is supposed to be quite small, but then it's mm. also this uh, Lisa Boito-Lotti who wrote the philosophy of science, which mm. Structured in a very different way from most other mm -hmm. books. I'm very excited mm -hmm. about that. Cool. But yeah, uh, I'm not reading any novels. What's the, time. the timeline for your philosophy of science book? When can we expect that? No pressure. So we will try to write it. We will try to finish it before the summer. 
So then it's up to the publisher. So maybe the Christmas after that. So maybe one and a half years. But yeah, so it's it's going to be a book on philosophical bias in science. Mm. So it will be our take on philosophy of science. Mm. Oh, I, I can't yeah. wait for that. Yeah, I'm going to have to get you back on to have a conversation when that drops, when that hits the market, because uh, I, <laughs> I'm looking for more of these books. I, I've read Popper, I've read Kuhn, I've read Fire Arbind, I've read Lakatosh, I've read all these guys. I can't wait to read There is a book too. that I would recommend, though, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, Nancy Cartwright and Jeremy Hardy. Uh, okay. It's a book called Evidence-Based Policy, A Practical Guide to Doing It Better. And what they talk about is not just in, in medicine. They just say it's something wrong with the evidence-based policy uh, idea mm-hmm. uh, that you test something and you see that it works here. But what reasons do you have to think it works outside of the place where you tested it? And it's a book that's written in a very simple way. So anyone can read it. And it's not very thick, very thin book. So Cartwright and Hardy, Evidence-Based Policy. Beautiful. That's a very, uh, yes. Thank, thank you. Thank you for the recommendation. And also thank you for chatting with me for the, for the better part of an hour. I really appreciate your time and your intellect. Um, and your opinions on things. I really, I really think you're doing uh, meaningful work and you're, you're really having an impact. So, so thank you very much, Rani. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Rani Lil Anjum. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.